Welcome back to Nothing Rhymes with Garrett's. I'm your host slash namesake, Chris Garrett's, along with... I'm Sam Mulberry. So, Sam, I think we're pacing ourselves with this podcast. That's it's right. It's been like six weeks or so. There was, a lot, of, there was a lot of clamor. I just need to say there was a lot of clamor on the uh, Live from AC Second channel about certain shows that were supposed to be regular and where they're going to come back, and they're all coming back this week. We're kind of like how Netflix did a big dump this month yeah. in April and like... Everything they they put out, that's what we're doing. So, so we're gonna binge, have three pods this week. So binge listen, everyone. That's right. Put all put your life on hold. But you know what? We important. are into lawn mowing season. Like people, yard work. People need podcasts, and we're providing. I was going to ask you how because you listen to an incredible number of podcasts. I produce podcasts, but famously never <laughs> listen to them ever. That's right. Is it mostly lawn mowing, or is you walk oh, from your house? To I work I, I do a lot of walking, a lot of exercise, a lot of yard work, lawn mowing, a lot of dishes, and mm-hmm. making lunches and cooking, and yeah, yeah. And you listen to audiobooks. And yep. I, mean, you, I do. You have this very oral kind of life. <laughs> I, I'm a hyper auditory learner, Chris. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, what is nothing rhymes with Garrett? You might ask. If somehow you missed that first episode that dozens of people listen to, um, I feel like uh, mostly this is to teach people at Bethel how to pronounce my last name. I was mm-hmm. having a conversation with a colleague of ours from a department which will remain nameless, in which he referred to me as Gertzy. Ooh. Now, I would point out, if the title of this podcast were Nothing Rhymes with Gertz, it would not be true, because actually a few things do. Hurts, uh-huh. uh, spurts, uh-huh. I guess. So, like, at least two things rhyme with Gertz. So, if that helps you remember, it is not Gertz. Uh, it is Gertz. Now, incidentally, my nick- one of my two nicknames in high school baseball was Gertzy. So, like, I'm fine with that. I can live with that. And I won't tell you what the other nickname so, was. G-E-H-R-Z-I-E? Or yes. Y? There you okay. go. Yeah, occasionally that's my username when things still, which Garrett's, is a pretty, yeah, lame, like pretty lazy username. <laughs> that's pretty rad, though. Like, at least it's a nickname. Yeah, it felt like very Garden Hire-esque. And this was oh, yeah. before Garden Hire. Yeah. But like, maybe that's just like a classic baseball move, right? As you had I think so. To a, I think were, so. Were you yeah. Mulberry-Z? Uh, no. I, actually, I, I think I've never had a nickname. Well, I really, listeners, let's get to work I on really this. think that's true. Like, I've always kind of wanted one. I, I feel like I'm kind of past, like, the nickname age, though, It's a little right? late to add one. It's like, but... at this point, I'm probably not likely to become an alcoholic or have a nickname. <laughs> All right. Good to know. Well, okay, so this is to teach you how to pronounce my last name. It's also a chance to test the theory that Sam and I could probably talk about anything for a good half hour. And so the only structure to this podcast is each of us have been thinking about three words that may or may not not rhyme with Garrett's and we'll may or may just, not but definitely do not <laughs> that's the conceit and and we will just then discuss said words and and see how interesting this is so Sam do you want to play first or do you want me to go start uh, why don't you go first okay so um, my first word is I think we have to get this out of the way Trump does Trump rhyme with Garrett's I don't think Trump rhymes with Garrett's nothing rhymes with Garrett's so the reason I was thinking about this is you're actually, playing a lot of rook and <laughs> well let's see that's the thing is right this 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 is a word that I grew up using. Like, I, I was actually in bridge club in high school. That's how cool I was. Wow. My nickname was Garrett in baseball, and I played in bridge club. And so, like, I, I knew what Trump was, and then I didn't pay a lot of attention to the other name brand Trump. But, of course, we now are in a situation where if we say, you know, Trump is in the context of a game or, like, the, the metaphor or the expression Trump card, like, we instantly, like, catch ourselves, right, and think, oh, I wait, just use the word Trump's this. like this Trump's that. I, like, I use that word a lot, and now you can... Do you use it more because of the president? No, 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 no. Like, like, like in my life, uh, I'm probably self-conscious of it. Like, I'm, I'm 
when I when I say it without thinking about it, I'm sort of like, oh shoot, I really, I really don't like that. Right, and I even saw an interview with him on like the Today Show or CBS this morning. I forgot what he was talking about, but he actually did that move where he said, "This trumps that," and he almost you could see him like pause. I think he might have even said like, "So to speak," or mm-hmm. something. Like, right, I mean, right. Even he is kind of aware of it. And you know, so the first reason I was thinking about this was. I'm trying to think, like, is there another example of this? And I, I couldn't think of one, so this huh. was a bad thing to bring. So maybe you can keep thinking about, I mean, where there was a fairly common word, and all of a sudden, because of current events, it takes on a different meaning. And it's not that it's rendered unusable, but all of a sudden, like, any time you use it, there's this double meaning to it. But the other the other thing that came to me is, I thought, this is not an etymology show. But I, I was kind of curious where this comes from, because, like... The, there was part of me that wondered, is this a fairly new expression? And so, fortunately, Bethel subscribes to the Oxford English Dictionary. And we have the second edition, and the OED is just endlessly fascinating. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, it's a rabbit hole of going back to, like, the 16th century and the birth of modern English. And it turns out Trump is, in the ways we would use it, is actually pretty old and well-established. Like, Trump cards and games go back to maybe the late 16th, definitely the 17th century. Um, you find games like Whist using Trump cards, mm-hmm. right? Um, and even kind of broader meaning of, like, Trump something shows up even in the late 16th, early 17th century. But, Sam, did you know there are other meanings to the word Trump that there are a little are, bit huh. more archaic? What do we have? Okay, so uh, meaning to be in the Oxford English, well, so they're kind of different versions. One is to cast in one's way as a hindrance or obstruction, or to get in one's way to obstruct or to impede one. It's a kind of blockade. Yeah, and so it's listed as obsolete, but, I mean, this shows up in, like, there's a work from 1553. Here's the one I wanted to bring to you, because it, it harkens back to a lecture you just gave in CWC, from the 1570 edition of John Fox's Book of the Martyrs, mm-hmm. which is a famous version and Protestant work about how Protestants were tormented by Catholics. But here now cometh Sir Thomas More trumping in our way. And so I'd like you to use this for your next English Reformation lecture to talk about how Thomas More trumps the Protestants. We will we Trumps will in the way of the Protestants. So you could use Trump to describe something like a wall? You, <laughs> you could. Or here's the other meaning uh, offered with, with uh, no further comment. Meaning 5C, to get up and devise in an unscrupulous way to forge, fabricate, or invent. Wow. Nothing more to say about that. Man, it's it's a little on the nose. Both of those are a little on the nose. <laughs> but they're obsolete, so that's right. clearly they have no relevance to the current day. Yes, forget everything we just said. That's right. Okay, so that was my first word, Trump. All right, I, I'm going to get my serious word out of the way, Chris. Right. Uh, the word that I've been thinking about is Sabbath. Sabbath. Does Sabbath rhyme with Garrett's? I don't believe it does. It almost does. It has an H, so like, it <laughs> almost close. does. Um, I've been thinking about this uh, not in terms of the Sunday is the Sabbath kind of meaning but but basically in that way um in that you are you are coming off of sabbatical so i don't know how long you're coming off of sabbatical is it like a full semester of coming off or? well here's what we realized that there, so if, if we had mentioned before my family spent all of my fall sabbaticals so september through almost christmas in southwest virginia the blue ridge mountains and it hit us sometime in april oh we've now been back in minnesota longer than we were in virginia oh interesting and that kind of felt like a good, like everyone like my wife's version of this is like she's eager to travel again like we we huh. lived out of a suitcase for sure months, so. Sure. And it, she feels just she's not really settled in quite yet. But it felt like the rest of us, like, okay, we've kind of found our rhythm now. Sure. So, so you're coming off of sabbatical, or just finished coming off of sabbatical. I'm a, I'm less than a year away. I was going to say I'm a year away, but a year from now I'll be finishing a sabbatical. So next spring. Um, 
and this made me just think about and well, that thinking about that, and I'm very excited about it. It's the kind of thing that um, I, I, if I wake up in the middle of the night, it's usually worried about a student I'm trying to find a tutor for, or a student I'm working with that I think isn't going to make it. Or I think about sabbatical, like huh. what I'm going to do and, and, and things like this. So I'm excited about that. And then I also got my um, letter. I have to, I'm up for reappointment this year, which means you need to write all these reflective essays and things like this. And which I'm actually kind of – I'm saying I'm kind of excited about. Like when it actually comes to writing it, I won't be with the reflection I really enjoy. It's a good thing the appointments committee listens to this podcast. That's right. Um, it is on my CV. So. <laughs> um, so, But this makes me think about like – I've, I've had a sabbatical before, and it, so it makes you think about sort of cycles of career. And I remember when you were on sabbatical, you uh, or either in the summer on sabbatical wrote about sort of career um, stages. Yeah, I'd read this book by Gary Berge, who's a I think New Testament scholar at Wheaton, who'd said they're kind of I think he called them three cohorts, maybe. Mm-hmm. Of, so there's like the initial, you know, you just feel like highly trained but insecure. You don't really know what you're doing. And then kind of around tenure, you sort of get your feet under it. But, like, at a certain point, all of a sudden, you enter the kind of flourishing moment where you're asked to do a lot of things. You know, you feel like you've kind of hit your stride. And I stopped reading at that point because I didn't want to read the third part, which <laughs> right. is when all of a sudden no one asks you to do anything. You feel like you're out of touch, and you're just kind of marking time until retirement. Right. And, and, and it's interesting because I think it, uh, this actually goes back to another podcast on this feed where we were talking about do humans peak? Do, like, we have these moments where we peak. And, I, and like, for me, around kind of in a couple of the years leading up to my last sabbatical, and then I feel like 2013 – in terms of my career, was a moment where like a lot was happening. We were we traveled to Europe for the first time. We taught uh, our online summer course and built it that year. Moving the needle started, which was this huge retention project I was part of. Um, and and part of me feels like okay, I'm coming down off of the, like I'm coming down off of a peak is what I feel like. Um, which makes me think about like okay, so I'm going on sabbatical and 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 is there a, what's the next peak? Is I guess the way I'm thinking about it because um, I'm not 40 quite yet. I'm almost there, but I'm not I'm not there quite yet. So it's like you know like there's a lot of time left. Like I'm not yeah. I'm not ready to be like oh well I've had my my moment. But it's but I feel like the seven years following this sabbatical are going to be different. Um, so this makes me think about sort of. Uh, I was thinking about you know crop rotation and sort of fallow oh, periods uh-huh. and then periods and and, and um, I had this moment in high school and I want to throw this out to you and, and see if this sort of mirrors anything else in your life but I remember distinctly this is what I was like as a high schooler if you were while you were playing bridge and being called Gertie on the baseball team I had this sense that my four years of high school were each marked by um, sort of a a cyclical kind of progression. I don't know if you can have a cyclical progression, but I'm going to say those words Um, where my freshman year was a year of promise. Hmm. My junior year, my sophomore year was a year of disappointment. Mm -hmm. My junior year was a year of work. And my senior year was like a year of harvest, I guess, to, huh. to you, where it was like where all those things kind of came to fruition. And what I realized is I far more enjoyed um, the year of work and probably the year of promise then I enjoyed, obviously, the year of disappointment. Um, and, but then I enjoyed the – I don't really like the year of harvest. The year of harvest was not fun. Right. Even right. though it's like it really was kind of like, oh, people were giving you this award or people were celebrating this. And it's like I didn't like that, but I really liked the year of work and I really liked the year of promise. And I, I'm, so I'm trying to be – as I'm thinking about reflecting on the last seven years of my career as I'm writing these um, appointment documents, like I'm trying to think about kind of what are the – are there? Are, do those cycles continue? So I'm curious if anything like that matches your experience. Right, it's fascinating. I never would have thought of individually. I also realize, as a result of being on sabbatical, just how hurried everything about my life is. Like I, I wouldn't even think to pause and think about that. And 
those would all probably be happening at the same time. Is how I'm describing sure. in my life, right? Like, but it did strike me on sabbatical um, because it is this Sabbath, right? I mean, it, it, partly what it struck me in because we're also living in this rural setting is how detached I am from the rhythms that shape I mean, the original notion of creation and, and Sabbath, right? Sure. I mean, that you actually would have to at least stretch your year out, you know, into these seasons, let alone maybe a, a longer period, multiple years of time. And um, instead, I, I just buy into the very modern kind of rhythms of business and productivity. So I actually wrote about that in the book that's coming out later this year. What I will say that I'm kind of wrestling with right now is last night, uh, my wife and I were at our kids' first choir concerts. They're first graders. Mm-hmm. And um, so we homeschooled them during the Sabbath, sabbatical. And um, if I get my next sabbatical, they will be eighth graders. They'll be finishing their time at this K-8 school. And so we're starting to think ahead to that and think, well, what can we do? Because we probably can't, I don't know if we can leave, like, their school in their eighth grade year. And it struck me, like, I have absolutely no idea what that will look like. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I am about to sign a contract for a book that will be due in three and a half years. And I'm having a hard time thinking ahead, like, a three and a half. I think I told you, like, last right. week, I have a three and a half year clock that just started ticking. And I don't know. I haven't done that since, like, my dissertation. Sure. And then I realized, but, like, that's only halfway to my sabbatical. Like, I, the previous sabbatical, I, like, you know, Chris of 2010 probably could have imagined what Chris was doing in 2017. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I can imagine what I'm doing in 2024. So, I mean, this is not really even an answer to your question. Right. Like, no, absolutely. It is really hard for me to think in, like, chunks of three right. to four years of time, let alone seven years of right. time. Let, let me blow your mind for a second. Please the do. next time I'm on sabbatical after this one, my son will be a sophomore in college. Oh, my goodness. Or, yes, and my what? daughter will be a senior in high school. <sighs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> now I feel old. That's right. Because, <laughs> I, I, like, I resonate with what you're saying. It's hard to imagine, like, we each have, like, 30 more years of our career left yeah, to do. Yeah, probably. No, <laughs> like, it's, I, it's interesting. Um, Sarah Shady, who's, um, we were all kind of the same vintage mm-hmm. in terms of coming to Bethel. Uh, we were on in a, we were guests on the appointment committee yesterday as there was a candidate. And, and um, you know, we were talking about this. He was probably late 20s, you know. Um, and we were talking about how young he seemed, but then as we were walking back, Sarah and I were talking, it's like, we were really, really, I mean, when, when Sarah and I started and you, so you were 27, six, and then 26. Okay. Sarah was 26. I was 24. No, I was 27. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. And it's like, like we've been here for 15 to 17 years, depending on how you're counting. And like. There isn't a genera- a big generation behind us mm-hmm. yet here. They're just starting to hire. As no, the people who are hired in the 80s are now starting to retire, we're starting to get that generation. But, like, we've been the young people here for 15 years. Yeah. Which no, is, I, which I is still do feel thing. that way yeah. a little bit. It's, it's very odd. Because we also are in this moment where we, I mean, like, we're asked to be. Young. <laughs> That's the thing. Right. But I, like, I still look around and feel like I don't quite belong here. Right, right. It's a very weird... But that, I feel like that pivot's going to happen quickly. Yeah. Like, yeah. all of a sudden, it's going to be... Um, when we get to things where you're sitting by how long you've been here, all of a sudden, you're going to be on the stage. Yeah. And, it's yeah. a big moment. Yeah. Okay, well, we should probably pick up the pace a little bit here. Let me go to my second word. And this, oddly, I did have a religious word, and so I'll, I'll follow Sabbath with mine, which is Easter. Hmm. Which has an E-R in it. Does it not rhyme with carrots? No, it does not rhyme with carrots. I had to think about that one for a sec. So I'm thinking about this because in in church on Sunday, uh, we heard this is the third Sunday in Easter, right? I've been thinking a lot about this, that um, Easter is this season, right? Easter tide, it's actually 50 days. That's why Pentecost follows out Mm -hmm. of it. 
And yeah, I'm not sure there's any season we actually think less about as a season in the church here than Easter because the single day is so big. Right. right? And like, I, I've got to the point where I almost like just don't even like Easter. It's, not, it's just too big. It's uncomfortable. It's busy. It's, I mean, when you have to wrestle a little bit with secular Easter, which is the yeah, worst it's of terrible. humanity. Yeah, it's absolutely that's awful. Not true, but, yeah. I mean, and, and so I, I mean, because <clears> of things like that, like, and because of how Christmas has become commercial, like, I mean, even Protestants now have really thrown themselves to some extent into Lent and into Advent, and they even maybe embrace some notion of, like, disciplines that go with that. And so I've been wrestling with the fact, like, Easter is this event, and, like, in some ways every Sunday is an Easter, but we don't sing those hymns again. Right. Like, I've, I've picked an Easter hymn for tomorrow in CWC just to kind of, because I, I like it and wish we would sing it more. Like, I'm going to go to you now as my kind of resident uh, liturgical Christian <laughs> expert. Like, is that is this just a Protestant thing? Like, growing up Catholic, was there a sense of Eastertide? Like, were, are there Easter disciplines that kind of remind us about resurrection? No, and, and, and I, lost? you know, hearing you talk about this makes me think, I'm always trying to think, like, like what's the what's the way to recapture some of these feelings? And I think, um, I think what a lot of people could, and I'll say Protestant, what a lot of Protestants could use, especially thoughtful Protestants who really, like, kind of love lent a lot yeah like i would say try letting go of loving lent and try to really embrace the the 50 days before pentecost yeah. I mean, like because that's a different story that's right. a different i mean i think about reading calvin in cwc where he's you know talks about the right use of this present life and one of the things he cautions against is sort of using this world without thinking about it but the other thing is this like Let's not do the over self denial, self flagellation thing. Mm-hmm. It's like let's think about like how do we celebrate life, yeah. you know? And I think Pentecost or the the bill. I don't know what you call. But I guess it would be Easter leading yeah. to Pentecost. Yeah. Like that's the moment to do that. So, and I I will say I think we had this conversation around Ash Wednesday this year, which is because I grew up with like real real Lent. Like mm-hmm. I actually I actively don't really do Lent. Because it's like, because that was so much a part of life that it's like, that's, and I think it's interesting that I'm surrounded by all these Protestants who are like, that's what I really want. <laughs> well, and it's probably the Protestant embrace of what's new, right? But I right. actually think you're right. Like, it did occur to me in February, partly because of a talk I was giving, like, evangelical Protestants really like atonement. Mm-hmm. Like, that's one of their favorite doctrines. And, like, maybe in the 21st century, we're a little less comfortable with sin and conviction. But, like, at its core, like... There's something there, and there's a reason you would actually embrace a whole season of just thinking about how sinful you are, mm-hmm. and I think that's really important. But I also it, it keeps hitting me like maybe we make a little too much of crucifixion, a little too little of resurrection, and mm-hmm. so coming out of that, like I think we have to guard against. Or, well, okay, Easter is done. Now we'll just kind of at least go back into just those rhythms. It's Fifty days before. of Sunday morning, Chris, and it, like again, it's a it's a way in which you know, we lose something by not being attached to kind of an agricultural, natural like mm-hmm. sp- at least in this hemisphere, like spring reminds you of new life like mm-hmm. every week or two there are different kinds of flowers coming up and things are turning green and trees are are flushing mm-hmm. out with foliage and um we, so i was thinking about this when shane claiborne was here uh, a past podcast guest mm-hmm. and the kind of precursor to this network um and he was talking about practicing resurrection and he had these really interesting metaphors about like in this community that he and his um a neo-monastic community had adopted this neighborhood in South Philadelphia that was gentrified. And they think about just like even beautifying it and restoring it hmm. and how you practice. Re- but he also is an anti-capital punishment crusader and, and mm-hmm. it was really convicting 
He was preaching a day after Arkansas executed someone to talk about practicing resurrection as Christians mm. in a society that executed. So anyway, like I've been thinking a lot about like what does it mean to actually sustain Easter as at least 50 days, you know, and maybe even every Sunday we ought to remember this a little mm-hmm. bit more clearly than we do. So that was my second word. Nice. Easter. I like that. Um, my my second word, Chris, is the word nostalgia. Ooh, nostalgia. Does Excellent. that rhyme with games? It's not, not even, even close. close. No. Yeah. has a G, so we got <laughs> that. Right. Um, and I was... I'm going to get about this in a roundabout way, but we're at the point now where our kids are old enough where they're watching shows that we watched as kids. Um, and as we watched as like, like, so for example, we were watching an episode of the wonder years with our kids and, and Esme's at the age that I was at, I think when the wonder years first debuted, I think or close to that, that might, my daughter. And, um, I was, it was one of those great, like Kevin and Winnie episodes kind of early on where it's like, the young love episodes, but like you, you know that there's sort of darkness around the corners, especially knowing that spoiler alert for a show that ended (laughs) 20 years ago, like in their futures, they don't end up together. Oh yeah. So, so, and I, and when, when it was over and our kids left the room, I turned to Anne and I said like, I I really have a hard time watching those. Like it really, like I'm not an overly emotional person, but like they're really hard for me to watch. Um, and then I think about how the Wonder Years makes me feel nostalgic for my childhood, but it also makes me feel nostalgic for a time period that I never lived in because I wasn't <laughs> alive in the late 60s. And this, all this made me think about, as I'm going to ask you as a professional historian, what is the role of nostalgia for a professional historian? Because is, is that a bad thing? Is, or, or how does that relate to like the, uh, the, the practice of doing history? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talk about this in, um, in Intro to History. It's... I mean, it's a way of making meaning of the past, right? And so in a sense, it's good. Like, if, if it does fight against our kind of ahistorical rush into the future or focus on the present. Um, and so usually, I mean, I think we use words like gauzy and hazy, right? Or sure. like, uh, you know, sepia-toned or something. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and so mostly I think we do want to emphasize it by contrast to the academic discipline of history, which in some ways is disenchanting, right? And it, mm-hmm. it's it's... Now let's contrast our maybe falsely constructed memories with what evidence actually tells us about the past. Um, but I'm trying to find something on my phone because I actually read a piece in, in support of nostalgia um, from James K.A. Smith, who is a philosopher at Calvin College. Um, very influential. He's writing a book on Augustine right now that I'm looking forward to reading. And he edits a magazine called Comment, which is published in Canada. And he wrote a piece on nostalgia. So let me see if I can find something. Uh, Okay. Okay, so it turns out that forgetting hobbles progress too, which makes attempting to lapse into the sweet sadness of nostalgia, that memory substitute that remembers only backward and selectively. Nostalgia is the selective memory of traditionalism. Instead of drawing on the past like a well to nourish our imagination going forward, nostalgia mourns a mythical golden age while conveniently forgetting the injustices in that history. Nostalgia invokes tradition as a white knight while attempting to deflect attention from the serfs crushed underfoot. Nostalgia ends up being its own form of forgetting. So this is an earlier version that he had written about nostalgia, and I can't find it, but I'm going to look up and, and put it on, on my blog post for this page. He did write something more recently in which he said there actually can be a kind of healthy nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there can be, I mean, at the very least, I think it roots us in our past. And I, I, I wish I could remember exactly what his argument is because it would be a better answer to your question here. Because, yeah, I think professional historians tend to be very suspicious of this. And yet we all do that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the weirdest thing to watch, like, a 1960s set movie and, like, the birds come on the soundtrack. And I get exactly what you're saying about the Wonder Years. Like, I, I was born 
you know, eight to ten years after any of those events, and yet you, it's such a powerful rush of emotion, mm-hmm. and I think um, we're, we're told to feel that thing about the 60s in so many ways. And like, it's, I don't, and I feel that about like cartoons from the 80s, and I'm thrilled when my kids discover something that I loved, and, mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't want to distrust that entirely. Like, I think mm-hmm. that's got to proceed from something that may be virtuous. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, I've also found – I remember I wrote my um, senior seminar paper when I was a student at Bethel um, about – it ended up being about uh, Vaclav Havel. But what I realized was every time I st- – and I studied with uh, G.W. Carlson here who you know was a uh, – communism, post-communism was, was kind of one of his, his big areas. And every time I studied about – Prague in the late 60s like I felt the way I feel when I watched the a Wonder Years episode like I don't know why that in particular but that's why I ended up writing on Havel was because it was just like every time we would read a book about communism when we would hit a chapter about that I'd be like yes there's something there's something and I and, but but it wasn't it's not intellectual it's not something that's like oh this idea grabbed hold of me it was it was kind of in my gut or in my I mean it's, it's a it's sort of a pietist experience of history sure, where it's yeah. like this there's something drawing me here, so you know I don't know. That's obviously probably not the same thing as nostalgia. Well, it's interesting but it's something because a lot of critique of nostalgia recently, I think, is in response to harking back to our earlier word. You know, this appeal to making America great again, mm-hmm. right? And I think rightly a lot of people criticize that as producing this kind of hazy notion of a golden age that never actually existed. But I think the other reason maybe you're drawn to nostalgia is it, it does feel like we're living living through this really turbulent time in which it's really unclear what the future looks like. And I, I mean, I have a lot of anxiety and fear right now. I mean, mm-hmm. and so it, I think we do want to be rooted in something. And we right. also want to believe there is something maybe, if not pristine, a little bit more hopeful to look back to. So I, shoot, I'm, well, let me see if I can find it. <laughs> this is really good radio, just kind of me looking for someone else's, uh, someone else's post. Okay, I will see if I can find it, then get back to it. Otherwise, I'll post it on my blog site, pietaschoolman.com. All right, nice part <laughs> All right. there. Well, what's your uh, third my word, third Chris? one, then, is the word museum. This does not rhyme with Gary. Not so at all. Go out. And so the reason, I've been thinking about this since you and I were at the Minnesota History Center for mm-hmm. a, a kind of preview of their new World War I America exhibit. And, of course, I mean, I think we're both excited. We teach a whole travel course in World War I. I've, I've done talks in World War I. It's weird to say it's a favorite topic of history, but it's definitely a meaningful one sure. that I think is important to teach to students. And uh, I, I think it's a really well-done exhibit, and I love taking my kids to the History Center. I love when we visit museums in Europe. And then there's another meaning for museum that I always wrestle with a little bit. So one of the most important American historians of World War One is a guy named Jay Winter, who I think just retired from Yale and wrote a book about um, commemoration that I refer to all the time, sites of mourning, sites of memory. And um, I read an article by him that repeated something he had said back when the, the American World War I Museum in Kansas City was dedicated, which is that museums are, I'm going to butcher his words, but essentially what he meant is museums are the cathedrals of the modern age. Hmm. He said museums are kind of like secular cathedrals. And what he meant is that museums are the place we go to encounter you know, T.S. Eliot's permanent things or something. It, it's where we go because that's where we make meaning of human existence hmm. in a way that we don't, I mean, at least in his mind, we don't go to churches. Now, some of us still go to churches to do this, but it was weird because like, I kind of get that. Like, you go to the World War One America exhibit, and there are certain values that, that run through that, mostly the values of, um, I think, individual dignity not being honored. Mm-hmm. For example, there's a lot about civil rights, about the African-American experience, about women's suffrage, 
um, you know, lamenting the loss, the waste of life. And so, I mean, it's clear there's a value that, I mean, I think a lot of us think about in kind of sacred terms. I don't know, though, that I ever feel like I'm in a museum and I'm in a kind of sacred space. I don't know well, if that resonates. And, and I would say, I mean, the other thing is um, how – that's a pretty high view of a museum because yeah. how often do most of us visit a museum? Right. You know, so, so it's – I mean, if we're saying that they're the cathedral they're, – they're to us what like a cathedral would have been to, you know, high medieval Europe. It's like, well, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't yeah. – that's. I mean, I think the idea is interesting, but I mean, I, it actually wants me to ask, well, what's really our cathedral? Yeah, I mean, because you know, I, I feel like it's probably not that. Right. No, that that was kind of my sense. I've never had like a transcendent experience in music. I mean, it's probably closer. It's at a site, right? It's mm-hmm. probably for us. You know, it's at like a World War One cemetery Certainly. or maybe Dachau, or yeah, which is yeah. weird because. Like, I was giving a talk on Saturday where I was trying to explain, like, how do we encounter God in liberal arts? And one of the ideas that did come to me is is we actually see God in negative space. We, we see him because his absence is so obvious. Mm-hmm. And that's what strikes me as so haunting about some of those sites of just mass death and tragedy. But, I mean, I think what he's trying to get at is, like, if we have moved into the secular or post-Christian age, like, we still, though, have that God-shaped hole in our heart or sure. secular equivalent. So where do we go to fill it? And if not museums... I mean, I th- th- okay, I'm gonna, this is a callback to probably uh, eight years ago on a podcast that we did. Um, the other thing I think about when I think about a cathedral is you can think about a cathedral as this thing that we go to now, which basically functionally are museums. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can think of a cathedral as filled with worshipers, and it's this sort of collective experience. Oh, yeah. you know. And I remember talking about um, uh, this was the night after, I think, a big Jim Tomei home run in the in the yeah. late last decade. And like, I, I, I'm overstating it by saying mm-hmm. it was a religious experience being with 45,000 people you know, at eleven o'clock at night, when he—I mean, it was a—it was a walk-off in the eleventh, and it was—and it to basically clinch the division, and it—that felt about as religious as anything in terms of like we're all here, we're all experiencing a moment, and it's, um, yeah, I mean, it was a kind of rapture. Like, I don't like that answer, but like, but there's something about those types of events that probably are close to religious i mean i think for some people concerts might be some some versions of concerts might be like that that's what i was thinking i think new york times did a piece once on my favorite band wilco in which it actually suggested this is the religious experience which is odd because most people have not even heard of wilco but because of that there is this kind of Mm -hmm. i don't want to say cult but like sectarian kind of experience that goes with it like you're all in on the secret but there are enough of you where it feels quite forty five thousand people but you know and you're having this and you're actually singing along to it. I mm-hmm. never forget when I was like 17, I was singing along to something, and my mom kind of like rolled her eyes and says, why don't you know the words to hymns like that? <laughs> and it was it was, it was probably probably like soul asylum. And it's, right. like, it's embarrassing in retrospect, but I think that that, that maybe actually has supplanted, or it's it's become the, the counterfeit or the substitute for it. Sure. But I think it's definitely true of sports. I, uh, there's a uh, John Updike writes this famous um, article on Ted Williams' oh, last game. Speaking my language, here. right? And in, in which Ted Williams, I think he's 40 at this point. It's his last time in Fenway Park, and his last at bat in a meaningless game, he hits a home run. And he walks out. He doesn't even acknowledge the crowd yeah. personally, but it, it's just an amazing piece of writing. And I've reflected a couple times that Updike says it points to the fact that baseball pulses with an indefensible hope. 
And like we always have the sense something transcendent can happen. Since we're talking about that, Let's can go I, for it. yeah, it's it's one of my favorite pieces of baseball great? writing yeah. ever. And there there's a line that I come back to that I that I resonate with so deeply, um, which is uh, there's when I go to a play. This is going to come back to up. Like when I go to a play, I, I have this sense of like I've never been in a play. I shouldn't be in a play, but I'm. I had this this deep sense of like the best kind of jealousy when the play is over and I see all the people who were part of something. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing when you see like a concert, if it's a small enough venue where like when, you, when you're leaving, you're walking by the people who are on stage and there's a sense of like you just did this thing that we were all part of, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, 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 and when, when Updike talks about Williams running around the bases and he says, you know, people were were chanting for for Ted to come out and tip his cap because he famously didn't do that after his like rookie year. And even the umpires were coming out trying to get him to come out. And Updike has this line that haunts me and makes me think of all of these moments. And he's because he had come to the realization that immortality is non-transferable. And we oh. desperately want to be we want to touch that and I realize I'm using immortality in a non-religious sense right. here. But like that that like the person who is up there on stage in that play or in that concert or who hits that home run, like they are touching immortality and yeah. like, because all of these people are drawn to that person. And it's, and, and whenever I see those, the, the, you know, those people that I have that kind of good jealousy for, I, the words I say to myself is immortality is non-transferable. If I go and talk with them, like I'm not, it's not going to rub off on me. No. Like, you know, I need to go do my own thing. <laughs> you know? I, yeah. It's, it's interesting you say that. Cause I, I mean, the other word I associate with that article is eternity. Because there's this interesting, I don't know that he really calls this out, but I always think... The title is Hub Fans Bid Kid Adieu. You should read it. That's great. (laughs) No, I I have read it. Um, No, I'm talking about the... Yeah, oh yeah. Listening. Um, Maybe it's just historians think a lot about time. So partly it's like you have this sense of like the past is all converging on this moment, right? It's the end of someone's career, like all these memories, many of which are not positive, coming together. Um, And then a lot of it's about hope, right? Like um, as soon as the bat swings... I mean, especially certain hitters. Like, I think for Twins fans right now, it's Miguel Sano. Mm-hmm. Or, like, Jim Tomey was like this. Mm-hmm. Where, like, you always have the sense. Like, in the most impossible sport ever, um, the most amazing thing can happen. And for you, it might even happen in the 11th or 12th inning with 40,000 people. At right. night, it makes it even better. Um, and so, like, it's also about the future. I mean, it's about all these imagined outcomes that can result from this. And then there's that moment, right, where time doesn't actually stand still. But in some way, it kind of feels like your spirit is outside of time, right? And mm-hmm. like all these things converge. Yeah, like we're getting really mystical here. No, but that's... But it's exactly why I think like that comes closer than the cathedral, actually, yeah. to, to something like, you know, the cathedral... I mean, than the museum, to something like the cathedral of the secular modern age. Wow. Okay. <laughs> we need to just do a sports pod at some point. Because I like this. All right. Okay. What's the last word? My last word, Chris, and I think this does not rhyme with Gertz, is the word wisecrackery. <laughs> I don't even know if that's... Check that in the OED. Too many syllables. I'm not sure that that's in the OED. (laughs) Okay. Um, I bring this up because um, I I referenced earlier in this pod that Netflix dumped a bunch of stuff in April. Not dumped. I mean, they just, like, flooded the zone with stuff. And one of them was the the return of Mystery Science Theater 3000, um, which is uh, just one of my favorite things. And, um, And I've... 
Ann and I every night will just be like, "Are you up for another one?" And we'll watch. and they're like an hour and a half, and and it's so the kids go to bed and we throw it. And my, our kids have started watching it on their own time too, and it's just it's just it's funny because being around you two is a little bit like a living. That's right. MSD three K. But I, you know, I think about I think about this as as perhaps the most Gen X thing that was ever created. Um, and uh, and like it, it sort of is the internet before the internet. Like this is what live tweeting is, except right. it's in the hands of professionals, and um, and it predates all of that. Yep. But uh, I don't really have a lot to say other than have you watched any of it? I've not, and I, I was trying because we've talked about this a little bit. There's a Bethel connection here that some of you might know about, and I I, I watched at the time back when it was it was on like channel 23 years. Yeah, and then it yeah. was on Comedy Central. Yeah. There's yeah. like 11 or 12 seasons of it. Oh, There's 190 episodes. No, it but it, I think you're right. And so I'm going to hijack your word here Go and talk it. about another word which is uh, I think even last night my wife and I were talking about I mean what demarcates the different generations because I very much feel Gen Xy mm-hmm. and I can't even explain what that means except like I love Nirvana. Like that was my, <laughs> that was that's what defined me and like I saw yeah, I, 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 that's probably it. Um, but Katie is, she was born in 1980, so she's five years older, five years younger than I am. And she was wondering if she is millennial. And I didn't think so. Like, I thought millennial has got to be like at least, uh, you know, so you're like five years too old for that. But I looked it up. The cutoff is 80, isn't it? It's like 80 or 82. I mean, generally, those yeah. seem to be the typical. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I started thinking about people I knew who were born in 1980. Like, my sister is born in 1982. My sister-in-law is born in, like... They fit it, but they're also just much more extroverted. And for mm-hmm. some reason, I associate that with the millennials. Like, they're more expressive than those kind of dour Gen X types mm-hmm. who are just, like, sulking all the time. And, and so, I don't know. Like, is that actually true? You know, well, that- th- th- there's all these things. It's like, so So the millennials were people who graduated from high school either in 2000, 2000. or right before it. Is That's kind of the idea. I think a, a bigger way I would talk about it, and I'm not a professional for talking about generations, but a bigger way I think about it is, like, did you have the internet in high school? Yeah. Like, that's a big piece of it. Cause like, that's a good way to like do it. Like, for, for Xers, the, for, for late Xers, like, the internet was something that was not part of your high school experience. No, I discovered it in college. Yeah. yeah. Like, and that, that, I think that's the big thing. And, and, and I, so I feel like, like, we're at the very tail end of that. Um, I mean, I was born in 77. And, um, and, but I definitely, I mean, I read my Douglas Copeland and I'm like, I am, on board with like that that's like that stuff resonates in my chest like that um and yeah and i think there is i i think it feels like 80 81 82 ends up being the cutoff and it's always uh, the lines are always fuzzy because there's probably millennials who were born in 77 just like yeah early millennials and those types of things but but like but they're they're young souls when they were that's born. right that's right um uh, yeah, and so when does it end? That's the other thing I'm wondering. Like, are we, is, we're still getting millennials in our classes, or are we now getting whatever? We are. We are almost is? to the point where st- we have. We almost have students who were born in the year 2000. I right. think 911 is probably the, the cutoff. cutoff date. Um, you know, if you were born into a 911 world, like you're definitely not a millennial. Okay, um, so there's not a lot of wise crackery here, but I actually think in the end, like I think Gen X is actually as close to Garrett's as we can get. That's right. right. It actually, starts the G and ends with a big Scrabble letter. That's right. So, good. good <laughs> Job, points we on the board, so. Well, I think if nothing else, we proved that we can talk for a while about just about anything because that went in some really interesting directions. Uh, we would like to hear from you. We don't want to just monopolize the conversation. Um, are, are there words like Trump where suddenly current events make them take?
take on new meaning. Um, what, what do you think about Sam's kind of the life cycles theory? Have you experienced something like that before? Uh, what's your equivalent of the cathedral for the 21st century? Can you suggest a new prime for me or a new peak for me? Because <laughs> that's right. I have some time. Yeah. Uh, so the last things you can write in to us about, Sam, how do they contact us? Uh, you can email the, ch- the the network at livefromacsecond at gmail.com. I'll also say s-mulberry at bethel.edu. Does the comment feature work on on uh, radio dot is it podbean I feel like I've tried to leave comments before and they never show. I'm up. not sure. I, so, maybe I'll need to turn that on. So I, I do also do like kind of a show page for the very few times we do this at pietaschoolman.com. So you can certainly contact me through that as well. But Sam, it's always good talking with you. This Looking is forward to the next like in six weeks or we'll take like a summer vacation and really rest up for the next one. Maybe. Probably. Well, we're going to be around in July. Maybe we can throw one, <laughs> throw one up in July. All right. Well, until then, thanks for listening to Nothing Rhymes with Garrett's. I my name everywhere.